following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. second scripture reading is from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke of when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness... We have all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. One of the things that we want to do at this church is that we want to walk through books of the Bible together. And some people call that expositional preaching. Scripture, verse by verse, basically, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we believe it's a healthy way of preaching the Scriptures. We don't think it's the only way of preaching the Scriptures, but we, we, we believe it's a healthy way of preaching the Scriptures. To take this kind of 30,000-level foot view and drop it down to like 100 feet and just walk through an entire book of the Bible together. So that's what we're about to start doing. We've spent a number of weeks talking about our values and our vision and our mission. And now we're about to take a deep dive into the book of John. And when I say deep dive, I mean a really deep dive, right? But we're going to spend some time, a good while, preaching through the book of John. And I think it's going to be healthy for us, okay? So today, you heard Darren read John 1 through 18. We're actually going to focus on uh, John 1 through 4 or run through five, and then we're going to look at verse 14, too, and then we're going to come back next week, and we're going to spend a little bit more time discussing some of the other things in in this first chapter of John. NBA Finals, anybody watching them? (laughs) It is thin in here. You see what I mean by multicultural, multi-ethnic, right? (laughs) Right? Three people raised their hand like, yeah, I'm watching. LeBron James, anybody heard of him? 
right? At least, okay, good. Okay, we got, we, got, we got some common ground we've established. So LeBron James is in a hot debate right now amongst many NBA fans and sports fans. They're saying LeBron James has gotten to the point that if he goes and he wins this uh, NBA Finals against this juggernaut that they're uh, otherwise known as the Golden State Warriors with all of their, uh, their merry band of men and all their talent, if he wins this championship against them, he should be considered the greatest basketball player of all all time. Now, there's a problem is that we got people booing already. And why is that? Well, because everybody, everybody already knows who they, who's considered the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. So you got people that are debating, is Jordan the greatest? Is LeBron the greatest? And you, right. And you got 19-year-olds debating or 17-year-olds debating. And I'm not even sure if Joe's ever seen Jordan play, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, how long was that ago? Joe's never seen Jordan play. Well, if he did, he, you know, it was, it was while his dad was changing his diaper or something. But what's unique about it is that you do have some people that have seen both of them play. Amen. Witnesses, so to speak, to Jordan and witnesses to LeBron. And, they, and, and, and you even have some people that have recorded it and archived it, and they're playing their footage side by side so you can, so can kind of get glimpses of what it would have been like if those two players were on the court at the same time playing against one another. You say, well, why, what, is, what is important about that? What, what, is, what, is that, what does that say? Well, it helps to have people there. It helps to have people that were in the moment, doesn't it? And, 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 and these people that are in the moment, especially fans of Michael Jordan, what you see now lately is a lot of people pulling old footage of Jordan and say, well, LeBron, who are y'all talking about? Y'all must have forgot who, how good this guy was. Let me show you some video footage to show you just how good he was. Well, John's not talking about Michael Jordan. John's talking about Jesus. A little bit more important. But John, in the latter, book, latter, chapter, uh, latter chapters of the book, in, in, in chapter uh, 20, 20, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Listen, these are written. In other words, we're going to cover this whole book over some time. And everything that John has written in this book, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believe, by believing you may have life in his name. So John writes the book almost like a Michael Jordan enthusiast would capture all of Michael Jordan's highlights and footage. Sure, Michael did a plenty of other things in his career, but I'm going to capture everything that Michael did in order to make the case that Michael is the greatest. And John says, I'm going to write this book. And sure, I could tell you a million other things that, that, that Jesus did while he was living with us and while he was walking with us. But I'm going to capture the highlights so that you may know that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Does that make sense? That's the motivation of the book. That's the purpose of the book. And so John opens up the book with more of like kind of this, this summary, really, if you will, of everything that's about to be covered in the book. And he starts with this ideal of the word. Some people, when they hear the word and they think about the word, word, they immediately jump into well, John must be talking about the Bible. He's not. 
In order for you to really understand what John is discussing and speaking of, you have to understand that, that, that when, when, the, when the readers of that day heard this term, the word, or in the Greek it's called the logos, when they heard this term, the logos, they thought about something very particular. For example, the Stoics, which were, which were a group of philosophers um, in the early, or not in the early, but the late B.C. centuries or the late B.C. time frame, they, they, when they heard the word logos, they considered it an active and rational and spiritual principle that permeated all reality. They thought about it as logic and reason that held the world together. Active, rational, and spiritual principle that permeated all reality. They called the Logos the, the, the nature and the soul and the, and the providence and the God, if you will, of the universe. Philo, which was another uh, philosopher, Greek philosopher, or rather a Jewish philosopher actually in first century, when he taught about the Logos, he taught that it was the intermediary, uh, intermediary or the middleman between God and the cosmos. God and the rest of the universe, being both the agent of creation and the agent through which the human mind can apprehend and comprehend God. The Logos was eventually considered by most as an impersonal force, if you will, which gave life and meaning to the universe. That's the Logos. It gave life and it gave meaning to the universe. So when you hear the word word in John chapter 1, you need to understand that that's what he's referring to. And what John is about to do for us is he's about to redefine it. Because they see it as very impersonal, right? Very, very aloof, very distant. And God is about to, or, or John is about to introduce the word as actually extremely personal and extremely close and extremely near, so much so that he inhabits real flesh and comes down to a real earth and walks amongst real men. Are you tracking with that so far? I know we're getting philosophical this morning, so we, so we might be delving into deep waters, and we'll, we'll toss you guys a couple of preservers as we go along the way, all right? So are, are, are you guys doing okay so far? Does that make sense? So John takes all of these ideas that are wrapped up in the Greek understanding of the Logos, and he says, you guys have been looking in the wrong place. You're looking at this kind of impersonal and distant sort of force to keep all of this world functioning and flowing the way it does. But the one behind the scenes of it all is anything but impersonal and distant. He is not a force. He is a person. If you're looking, in other words, what John is saying is, is that if you're looking for the author of all of this and how all of these things are being held together and kept together, I'm about to show you him. If you're looking for the one who gives meaning in life and, and meaning in the universe, I have your answer and I'm about to show you him. If you're looking for the source by which God has manifested himself and unveiled himself, I'm about to show you him. His name is Jesus. And, when, and what John is saying is that the meaning, the meaning of life in a universe, the meaning of this universe, the purpose for your existence is not found in a set of ideas. 
is found in an actual person. Does that make sense? You can't look to principles to figure out why you're here. You look to this person, and the reason why you're here begins to be slowly unpacked before your very eyes. The highest manifestation and unveiling of God to us is not through principle, is not through ideas, is not through facts and sentences. The highest manifestation and unveiling of God to us is through a person, Jesus. That's the Logos defined, if you will. And then we got a whole bunch of descriptive words to define that Logos that you see on the screens on the left and the right of me. Don't worry, we won't be there in every single point that long. But let's start with the idea of the eternal word. In the beginning was the word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. He was in the beginning with God. So as we read as we read those words this morning in the beginning we should think back to to what? Anybody know where 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 that what that sounds familiar to or what that sounds like? Genesis 1, creation, right? In the beginning, God. And so John uses borrow some of that language if you will to help you make the connection that what who I'm talking about The Logos, the Word, the Son, Jesus Christ, not only is he here in this moment when he was born and came to earth, but he was here all the way back in that moment when this earth was first created. In other words, remember, the Logos is the sustaining and creating force that that, that governs this universe, and John is saying that was him. Not just some some impersonal force, no, a personal and real body that was him. That was God the Son back then. And as we think about that, we should, we should, we should, we should understand that, okay, if, if, if Jesus was back then, it means that Jesus is not defined by our timing. Does that make sense? He's not defined by our timing. So for a personal application for me is that it means that he's never late. Right? Now, how often do you feel that he's late? How often do you feel that he's late? In your own life, in your own walk. Like, yeah, Jesus could have used you 10 days ago on that light bill, right? Or maybe he could have used you, you know, two hours ago in that car accident. Or maybe could have used you one day ago in that tragic death. But you need to understand that because he's eternal, he exists outside of time. And because he exists outside of time, he's never late. He's always purposeful. He governs time. Does that make sense? Even the timing that we don't understand, he governs it. But not only is he an eternal God, he's always been in existence. He's the eternal word and always been in existence, but he's also the divine word. The word was, in the same same passage here, the word was with God and the word was God. So the logos, 
was present with God, and the Logos was, in fact, God himself. We hear this often in Jesus' words, that he was with God the Father, that he had fellowship with God the Father in a manner that stands above and beyond anything that we could think about when it comes to fellowship. For example, in in chapter 10 of this very gospel, again, think about this first chapter as a preview of all the things John's going to talk about later. So chapter 10, he talks about this fellowship. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. John chapter 10, verse 30. Verse 38, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Verse 14 and 15 of the same chapter, chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And so the Father and Son enjoy perfect harmony. No shifting, if you will. When you hear Jesus say that his food, he says that once, that his food is to do the will of the Father, believe him. He is completely, completely on the same line as the Father. That the Logos, the Logos was with God in true, deep, and genuine fellowship. But not only was he with God in true, deep, and genuine fellowship, but he was God. So we know that the Logos Jesus, the Word, was more than a man. He was greater than the angels. He was, in fact, God wrapped in human flesh, as we'll see later on in the last point this morning. But he says in John chapter 8, verse 48 through 59, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is the, this is the kind of discussions that Jesus and the, 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 the Jews would have from time to time. You know, real, real good friendly discussions, you know, high quality discussions, right? So, so they, said, they said, you must have a demon in you, man. How crazy are you? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Now we know you crazy. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. He said, everybody else died. You're telling us that if if we take heed to your words, we're not going to die? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets that died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glory myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. I enjoy fellowship with him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him. You see that pot shot, man? Jesus just, he throws jabs with, like, the swiftness. I would be a liar like you, and he just keeps talking. Right. But I do not know. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you're new to that type of language, if you're new to that type of language, 
when God was asked, who should we say sent us? God responds, tell them I am. In other words, I would respond, uh, tell them Brian Crawford, right? (laughs) And, And when you say Brian Crawford, that means son of Gene Crawford, right? In the late E.J. Crawford. I, I got a past, right? I got, I got people. I got kinfolk that you can go back to. He says, tell them I am. In other words, there's nobody before me. There's no one else to track. Does that make sense? No Ancestry.com for God. No DNA. He is before all things were. And so Jesus, in this moment, they're saying, who do you think you are? You think you're Abraham? You think you're greater than Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. And they said, wait a second, let me find a rock. You know, <laughs> I mean, this, this, is how, this is how I went, right? They literally said, okay, enough is enough. This man, he, he's crazy. We were going to let you slide because you were crazy, but we can't let that slide. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, which is divine, by the way. I, I, hope you under, I hope you guys understand. I mean, how can you hide yourself? You're like the only guy that's talking this kind of noise to everybody. Everybody's looking at you. Everybody's keyed in on you. And all of a sudden, you, everybody starts picking up stones, and they look up, and he's like, where did Jesus go? Jesus is not only with God in the beginning as the Logos. Jesus is God. Not only is he God, but he is, or not only is he, he divine and eternal, but he's also the creator. All things were made through him, the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word is eternal and divine, but it's also creative and a creator or the creator. And so, again, we see this, this, this agency that, that both the, the Greeks and the Jews are familiar with in their respective philosophies that they have about this ideal called the Logos being applied not to some impersonal force, but being applied to a personal and divine person who is a redeemer and savior and whom we call Lord. Now, if that is, the fact, if that is in fact the case that all things were made through him, the word, And without him was not anything made that was made. If that is the case, then we are in desperate need of reordering our worship. How many of you worship Jesus daily as if he is the creator of all things? How many of you chase after God? as if he is the creator of all things. If the cosmos or if if the beings in the heavens were looking down on us and took a glance, they would maybe surmise that sports was the source of all things. Or that work was the source of all things. Or that parties were the source of all things. Or that cars and houses were the source of all things. 
because that's where all of our energy and devotion lies, right? How should our worship be reordered in light of the fact that God, the Son, the Logos, the Word, is the creator of all things? How should your life today be reordered in light of the fact that the Word is the creator of all things? How should my life be reordered in light of the fact that the creator or the creator of all things is Christ? We would rather worship the things that the creator creates rather than worship the creator himself. As a matter of fact, Matt Chandler once said, matter of fact, he, matter of fact, he said it just a couple of weeks ago, Matt Chandler, uh, the pastor of the Village Church, listen to this. We, as, we ascribe divine attributes to the stuff of future garage sales. Did you hear it? We ascribe divine attributes to the things of future garage sales. Jesus says that in him, or John says of Jesus the word, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the life-giving word. He speaks of this life in chapter 10 of John, again, thinking about John 1 as a preview of all that comes ahead. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus again said to him, truly, truly, or said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So notice that and catch that. Did you see that? The two links between life and life. That he says, I came to give life and life more abundantly. And he gives it by giving his own. He gives you life by laying down his life. What, a, what an unbelievable God that is. That in order to rescue you and give you the real life, the life that, the life that oftentimes we're, we're pushing aside, right, in, in, order, in order to chase after things that we think are life. Even, even, even now in today's culture and context, pop culture has a saying, oh, man, that gave me what? Life. What gave you life? Man, that massage. <laughs> you know what I mean? That TV show gave me life. And I'm not, I'm not hating on people to say they gave me life, but what I'm saying is making the point that there is a greater life to be given to you, and many people reject that. Does that make sense? Some of y'all are like, man, no, I can't say that gave me life. No, go ahead, go ahead. That's fine. That's fine. I'm not hating on you. But what I'm saying is, is that many people will speak in that way, all the while rejecting the one who is giving real authentic, genuine, eternal, enduring, and sustaining life. And we'll chase after all of these empty cups 
and forsake the one who gives living water that never runs dry. When he speaks of life, he's speaking to the sustaining energy of God. Not just, not just to a few men here and there, but the sustaining energy that he gives the entire world. He says it's found in him, the Logos, the Word, the Christ. Everyone is in the business of giving life these days, but there's only one that really and truly can give it. He's the illuminating word. Scripture says in, in verse 4 that the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So, so the light which we know to be the word, which we know to be the Christ, is shining in the darkness. Shining in the darkness. The formation of the word shine from the text, according to some Greek studies, is actually reflecting an ongoing shining. In other words, despite the opposition of the darkness, the light continues to shine. Despite the pushback of the darkness, the light continues to shine. Despite the efforts to extinguish it, the light continues to shine. It is an eternal light that is shining in the darkness. You can, you can feel that tension in the next, in the next verse there, or, or in, the, in the next part of that verse where it says, and the darkness has not overcome it, right? Now, when you hear that word overcome, there's two ways, actually, that that Greek word can be rendered. One way, we can see it as the light did not understand it. So, as a matter of fact, when you read in some translations, you'll see that. that, the, that the, or rather, the darkness did not understand the light. The darkness could not grasp a hold of the light. And then in some cases, in some translations, you'll hear it being spoken of and shared in such a way where it speaks to the darkness not being able to conquer the light, suppress the light. So either it's a reference to the darkness not understanding it or it's a reference to the darkness not being able to stop it. But either way, it's sustaining and eternal. I'm quoting, quoting one of uh, the, 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 the great uh, Zondervan Bible background commentaries here. It says, for some, light was wisdom. For others, light was given, to the, uh, given by the Mosaic law or scripture. Still others looked for enlightenment in philosophy, mora morality, or a simple lifestyle. So when you hear light, you should be thinking about wisdom. You should be thinking about um, the, the scriptures for, for some. And you should be thinking about in philosophy, morality, enlightenment a better lifestyle, and it's shining and pushing back darkness. One thing that we can often, um, to our own detriment, lose sight of is the immense darkness that we live in and are surrounded by in this world. We need to be reminded of it so that we can celebrate the light all the more, though. Does that make sense? Sometimes we just want to kind of cover our eyes to the darkness you guys know that feeling where it's like it's so much going on, I just don't even want to see it. And I understand that. Believe me, I understand that. But sometimes we can play so ignorant to what's going on around us that we lose appreciation for the light that is shining amongst us. You type in London this morning in your search engine on, your, on, your, on the Internet today, 
and you'll be met with the following. At least seven people have been killed and 48 injured in a terror attack in central London, with police shooting three suspected assailants dead. That happened just last night. You type in Coptic Christians this morning in your web search engine, and you'll be met with the following. Gunmen have attacked a bus carrying Coptic Christians in central Egypt, killing at least 28 people and wounding 25 others. That happened last week. If you would have typed in Manchester a week ago, you would have been met, you would have been met with more tragedy in Manchester, England. 22 people, including children, were slain in an attack in a stadium during a concert. 59 more people were injured. As a matter of fact, they were preparing for a benefit concert tonight when the second attack in London happened yesterday. We live in a dark, dark world. But you don't have to go to London to see darkness, do you? All you got to do is look into the eyes of a six-year-old child in Jackson as they flash his picture on the news. A little baby by the name of Kingston Frazier that was murdered in cold blood in a car theft gone bad by three young men that we'll never understand what their motivation and reason was for shooting that boy. And we probably don't want to know, besides darkness, we haven't even mentioned the man last week Late or late Saturday night, early Sunday morning in Bogachitta and in Brookhaven, Mississippi that went on a tirade, a fit of rage, shooting and killing eight people that he knew. These were people that he was familiar with. He had he had interacted with. We're seeing even the darkness of racial animosity in this country rise up a little more, aren't we? Just in Washington, D.C., this past, this past month in D.C., they have had five different occasions of nooses being placed in prominent places in D.C. Five in the last month of rope nooses being placed throughout D.C. Two of them have been placed in the recently established and uh, opened African American Museum. This facility, which we take great joy in seeing established and open, and in the last week and a half, I think, there have been two instances where people have dropped nooses in there. Just, just, to, just to drop a little fear in the, in the water to let the world know that hate is still there, that darkness still exists. We live in a dark, dark world, and hiding our heads in the sand does not change that. 
It doesn't remove it. It doesn't absolve us of it. It doesn't free us of it. But in the midst of the darkness, the light came. In the midst of the darkness, the light came. And the light is shining. Not, not, not did shine, but the light is shining. So, for example, news reporters that, 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 that were on the scene when the Coptic Christians were, were preparing to bury their dead, the 30 that they lost in a, in a recent attack with gunmen shooting into the vehicle that, that was carrying these people along their way, that they captured Coptic Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt, a number of other Coptics as they cared for their wounded and prepared to bury their dead, shouting the words, La, Laha, Ila, Allah, Al, Masihawa, Allah. What does that mean? There is no God but God. Christ is God. Do you hear me, folks? As they are burying their dead, they are saying that there is no God but God, and Christ is God as they lay their dead to rest. There is light shining in the darkness. The light came to the world and is shining in the darkness, even in light of the nooses found in the past weeks in Washington, D.C. Yesterday in Jackson, Mississippi, a place that some would consider the hotbed for racial animosity. Some of us had the privilege of sitting in a room with an 86-year-old man by the name of Dr. John Perkins, who's given nearly all of his life towards seeing racial reconciliation. The man is given 60 years. He's doubling up most of us in this room. Not doubling up in living, doubling up in just spending time fighting and pushing back the darkness of racial segregation, animosity, and oppression. And we watched that man walk that room uh, yesterday at lunch in tears as he weeped in joy about what God was doing in the land. You know, some, some, sometimes, sometimes we can say, we can talk about how bad it is, but man, talk to someone with some context, man. Talk to someone with some years on the, on, on, in, in their belt straps, some loops in their belt, and they'll tell you, man, it could be a lot worse, brother. That man was weeping at what he was seeing God doing and bringing together races and ethnicities into one space. The light came to the world and is shining in the darkness. You don't have to look any further than this room that we're in. Even this small gathering of people is proof that the light has come to the world and is shining in the darkness. So what does that mean? That means don't quit. Don't put your head in the sand and hide. Take the light that is in you, the light of Jesus Christ, and let it shine in dark places. That's what you have it for. That's what he gave it to you for, to push back darkness, not to hide and flee from it. 
Of course there's going to be darkness. And of course darkness will always seek to oppress the light. And of course darkness will always seek to, or, or will not always understand the light, right? But the light will always keep shining. So go. You don't have to ever worry about it being extinguished. Go. And let your light shine. Lastly, the fleshly word, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. What does that mean? Well, the, the, the easy answer is that it means that Jesus came. Jesus the Logos, the Son of God, the Word. Not only was he with God in the beginning, not only was he God himself, not only was he the light, not only was he the life, right? But he also indwelled himself in flesh. So, we talked about John trying to change the understanding of what the Logos really means, right? That is not impersonal. That is not distant. That is not far off. That, is, that, that it is not... unfeeling, a lack of better word. That it feels something. That it yearns for you. It's not just operating randomly. Does that make sense? It's not just this random dial of the uh, dial of the knob or pressing of the button. It is actually a person that is pursuing you. This logos. And so when we talk about the idea that Jesus wrapped himself in flesh, it takes us even deeper into the understanding of his person. It takes us deeper even into the understanding of the fact that he is not just distant, but he is near. He's so near that he knows your pain. Why? Because he wrapped himself in the same flesh that you're wrapped in. He knows what it, how it feels to feel pain. He's so near that he knows your struggle. Why? Because he wrapped himself in the slain flesh that you're wrapped in. And Jesus went to pray in Luke 22. He came to a place, Mount of Olives, asked the disciples, hey, would you pray, pray for a little while? Then he went a little deeper into the garden he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He knows what it means to pray a prayer and not get it answered. The prayer he prays is remove the cup, but if thy will. How many prayers have y'all prayed that way? This is what I really want right now. But Lord, I'll rest in it. I'll rest in where you take me. I've been praying prayers like that this week. I know that's where you, I know, I, I, I know that you're in control, God. 
I know it. But if you don't mind, if you don't mind, would you, would you, would you take this? Now, now understand something. Even as you pray that prayer, know that Jesus prayed that prayer. He knows your struggle. He knows your isolation. Matthew 27, when he is hanging on that cross, the sixth hour comes about, that being about 12 o'clock in the day, darkness covers the land. At the, at the height of day, darkness covers the land. And about the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows your isolation. He knows what it feels like to feel like you've been forgotten. In that moment, had he been forgotten? Of course not. But with the weight of sin, the sin burden, your sin, my sin, the weight of God's wrath bearing down on the shoulders of your Lagos, your Savior, your Lord. In that moment, he knew what it meant, or he knew how it felt to feel like you were forgotten. Theologian Joel Beek puts Jesus' moment on the cross like this. Jesus is expressing the agony of unanswered supplication, unanswered prayer. Unanswered, Jesus feels forgotten of God. He is also expressing the agony of unbearable stress. It is the kind of roaring that's mentioned in Psalm 22, the roar of desperate agony without rebellion. It is the hellish cry uttered. When the undiluted wrath of God overwhelms the soul, it is heart-piercing, heaven-piercing, and hell-piercing. Further, Jesus is expressing the agony of unmitigated sin. All the sins of the elect and the hell that they deserve for eternity are laid upon him. And Jesus is expressing the agony of unassisted solitariness. In his hour of greatest need comes a pain unlike anything the son has ever experienced. His father's abandonment. He feels like nobody is there. Even the one that we just read, he's been with from the beginning. But he didn't do it just for the purpose of relating folks. He did it. He took it. He took the pain. He took the isolation. He took the struggle so that he would take it from you forever. The Logos wrapped himself in flesh and took on the struggle of man 
took on the pain of man, took on the sin burden of man so that man would no longer have to take it on himself. This is the God that we serve. This is the word that John speaks of in John chapter 1. This is the word that calls all of us to come and be his own. Walk with him. Call him Lord. Call him Savior. Live our lives as if he has indeed created this universe and created us. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you the praise, glory, and honor, Lord. Thank you for walking with us through your word and carrying this weary and tired soul. Thank you for carrying all of these weary and tired souls, Lord. Wrapping us in your arms, loving us even in our, our mistakes, loving us in our sin, loving us in our highest achievements and in our lowest failures. We thank you, Lord, that we always enjoy and have the privilege of your love. And we pray, Lord, that we would continue to march on and to live in light of that love, to shine the light that has been shown on us. We give you thanks and praise and we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.